Welcome to another episode of The Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, uh, it's a solo episode. I alone will be talking without my co-hosts, Jimmy Johnson and Dewey Doval. And the content of this episode will focus on a particular Baptist named William Carey. The episode title is Expect Great Things, Attempt Great Things. I'm going to be reading something that I have compiled uh, in studying William Carey. Uh, More specifically, I'll be giving a biographical sketch of William Carey with some lessons that can be learned from studying him, including uh, the obligation to use means, the importance of friendship, and the significance of evangelical Calvinism. Much of the material in this work that I have compiled is not original to me. Uh, In fact, I am extremely indebted in this talk to three well-known particular Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist historians named Timothy George, Dr. Tom Nettles, and Michael Haken and their works. Uh, Timothy George's William Carey in the British Particular Baptist series, Tom Nettles' William Carey's in the Baptist series that he has authored, and then Michael Haken's uh, short volume called The Missionary Fellowship of William Carey, published by Reformation Trust. So rather than um, telling you at every moment when I am quoting from one of these authors, please know that I am drawing from them consistently uh, in this talk titled, Expect Great Things, Attempt Great Things. Without any other further introduction, let us begin. In May of 1792, Carey was asked to preach at the annual meeting of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association. On this occasion, ministers and messengers from the 24 associated churches gathered in Nottingham at the Baptist Chapel in Friar Lane. During this associational message, Carey uttered the following phrase, Expect great things, attempt great things. The plea for this message centered around evangelizing the nations. The ferment of his prolonged study and passion for spreading the gospel overseas was poured into that one concentrated address. After this message, when it appeared that the messengers would close without definitive action, Carey brought a halt to the proceedings to plead with Fuller to call for some action related to the foreign mission question. A resolution was passed. Resolved that a plan be prepared against the next minister's meeting at Kettering for forming a Baptist society for propagating the gospel among the heathens. Through the efforts of these backwater Baptists, the modern missionary movement sprung forth. The purpose of this talk, then, is to consider one of the Baptists who was so intimately involved in this movement, namely William Carey. This purpose will be achieved by examining factors that contributed to the success of these closely knitted particular Baptists, and to rightly examine the life, ministry, and impact of William Carey is to consider a group of friends plotting together 
for the Lord. So first, a biographical sketch. William Carey was born on August 17, 1761 in a village called Palsbury in the Midlands of England. He was the oldest son of five children born to Edmund and Elizabeth Carey. His father, Edmund, strongly influenced Carey's early years. Edmund was initially a weaver by trade, but an important career change took place in 1767 for him. Timothy George writes, When William was six years old, his father was appointed master of the local charity school in the village. It was providential that Carey, whose interest in education would form a major part of his life's work, should begin his days as the son of a schoolteacher. Though Carey did not receive formal theological education, his father's influence taught him critical thinking skills. These skills likely gave young Carey an interest to read literature, including the Bible. His father later recalled that his precocious son has always been attentive to learning when a boy, and when William himself remembered that he had been accustomed to read the scriptures, he recalled that he was doing so from infancy. When William turned 14, his father apprenticed him to Clark Nichols, a schoolmaster in Pittington, and like Carey's father, a strict English churchman. Through this vocation, Carey would meet a man named John War, the blessed instrument used by God to confront Carey of his sin and show him his need of salvation in Christ. War, a nonconformist, was initially disinteresting to Carey. Perhaps this was because of Carey's Anglican upbringing. To use the words of Tom Nettles now, Carey, coming from staunch Anglican stock, had learned to disdain these people who did not care to worship in accordance with the established Anglican church. Or perhaps he was distracted by the everyday activities of his youth, youth like playing football, which Michael Haken notes. Nevertheless, War's insistence was impactful on Carey. As War, as War continued to witness to Carey, the latter felt a growing uneasiness and stings of conscience, and they gradually increased. Well, around this time, Carey experienced most awful profligacy of his conduct, being addicted to swearing, lying, and in haste conversation. Though War loaned Carey's books to work through during this time, Carey resorted to cleaning up himself and looking inwardly for his own uh, right standing with God. He sought to reform himself, leaving off lying, swearing, and other sins, and he began attending three parish church services on Sunday and the dissenters' prayer meeting in the evening. And around Christmas of 1777, Carey more greatly felt guilt for his sins, specifically because of a significant lie that he told. On a visit to Northampton, he visited a shop and met a hardware dealer named Hall, who gave Carey a counterfeit shilling. Carey later attempted to pass this fake currency off to his employer, but the lie was soon detected, and Carey's dishonesty was discovered, and he was covered with shame and disgrace, afraid to even go abroad in the village for fear of what others were thinking of him. 
Although Carrie was self-reforming and trying to look good outwardly, it was through this experience that he rightly saw his sin. In Carrie's words, it caused him to see much more of myself than I had ever done before and to seek for mercy with greater earnestness. Sometime afterward, Carrie was converted as he came to depend on a crucified Savior for pardon and salvation and to seek a system of doctrines in the Word of God. Although John War was the instrument used to bring about Carrie's salvation, he was part of a congregation that preached and practiced infant baptism. Part of Carrie's search for a system of doctrine inevitably included studying baptism. He examined this subject thoroughly after hearing a pastor named Horsey preach on the rantism of an infant, that is, the sprinkling of an infant. And after studying this issue for himself, Carey was convinced that the Bible teaches the baptism of disciples alone. Early one Sunday morning in October of 1783, Carey was baptized by the Baptist pastor John Ryland Jr. in the River Nene at Northampton. Around the time of his baptism, Carey came across the published journals of Captain James Cook recounting his voyages in the Pacific, which involved, among other things, the discovery of Tahiti and the charting of the unknown shores of New Zealand and Australia. Carey put it this way, Reading Cook's voyages was the first thing that engaged my mind to think of missions. Carey collected geographical and religious information from nations he supposed had never heard the gospel for the next eight years. Edmund Carey's impact upon William continued into his adulthood. Like his father before him, he became a village schoolmaster for poor children. During this time, Carey also worked as a school ma- or a shoemaker and a pastor at a church in Moulton, Northampton. He worked these three jobs because the church there could not afford to pay him an adequate compensation. And concerning the time of Carey's calling to this work, Michael Haken writes, John Sutcliffe noted in the only church book that on August 10th, 1786, Carey had been called to the work of the ministry and sent out by the church to preach the gospel wherever God and his providence might call him. Sutcliffe's advice regarding whether Carey should devote himself to the work at Moulton had not been recorded, but he must have been encouraged uh, to give himself to the Baptists in the village that he now called home. From that November, Carey was invited by the Moulton believers to become their pastor, and three months later, after prayer and presumably discussion with Sutcliffe, Carey accepted Carey pastored the Moulton work until the summer of 1789, until on May 7, 1789, when he accepted a call uh, from the Baptist Church at Harvey Lane in Leicester. Carey would serve in this Northampton Association church until sent to India to preach the gospel. The minutes of the business meeting for the Harvey Lane Baptist Church in Leicester, England for September, October, November, December and January of 1792 through 1793 state no business of importance except that as of January our pastor gave us notice that he should leave us in March having engaged to go on a mission to Bengal and the East Indies. 
with such a notation in the church minutes, the church of which William Carey was pastor recorded the most significant event in the history of modern missions. On June 13, 1793, the Carey family set sail from Dover to India. The crew consisted of William, his wife Dorothy, their four children, Felix, William, Peter, and Jabez, and Dorothy's sister. On November 11, 1793, the crew safely arrived in India after a tempestuous sea voyage of five months, Carey and his family arrived in Calcutta. Upon arrival, he and his family were immediately met with difficulties, including the potential of being shipped back to England since they entered India as illegal aliens. After just a few months of being in Calcutta, William moved his family to Mdabi in the summer of 1794 to manage an indigo factory to provide for his family. Providing for the physical needs of his family was a difficult circumstance because this was also a season of much discouragement. Carey witnessed little tangible spiritual fruit upon his arrival in India. For seven years, Carey worked in India without seeing a single convert from Hinduism to the Christian faith. He prayed, preached, taught, translated the scriptures into Bengali, but with no visible results to show his efforts. There were times when he was discouraged and oppressed, but he kept plodding on, as he put it, toward the goal of establishing a vibrant Christian witness in India. After many years of laboring, there was cause to rejoice. In 1797, Carey completed the Bengali translation of the New Testament. In October 1799, he was joined on the mission field by co-laborers William Ward, Joshua Marshman, and Hannah Marshman. A few months later, on January 10, 1800, Carey and his family moved to Sarampore to establish a missionary community to focus on Bible printing, education, and further missionary work. Eventually, the Sarampore community numbered around 60 persons who worked in various aspects of the mission. Then, there was an ample reason for rejoicing. After years of labor, a man named Krishnapal was converted by the power of God. The work of Bible translation was a vital means to bring Krishna to faith. Krishna Paul rejoiced in the sovereign grace of God, for they had no other means, it seemed, that a New Testament and a few pamphlets were used to bring about his understanding of the scriptures. On Sunday, December 28, 1800, Carey baptized Krishna Paul into the Ganges rivers. Blessings continued for on February 7, 1801, the first Bengali New Testament was printed. In the following years, the Lord prospered the work of Carey's hands and gave him opportunities to educate while translating. In, in April 1801, he was appointed a teacher at Fort William College in Calcutta. By 1807, he was awarded a doctorate by Brown University for his accomplishments. In 1808, the Sanskrit New Testament was published. Ten years later, in 1818, the Sanskrit Bible was published. Also, in 1818, Carey, Ward, and Marshman opened Sarampore College. Carey's missional and educational achievements are evidenced in that he lived the essence of what he preached in 1792. His entire life was expecting and attempting 
great things. On June 10th, 1781, William married his first wife, Dorothy Plackett, a woman who was five years older than him. Together they would have six children, though three would die as young children. Their firstborn, Anne Carey, died in her second year. Their older daughter, Lucy Carey, also died in her second year. The four living children who bordered to India were Felix, William, Peter, and Jabez. And after less than a year in India, his five-year-old son, Peter, contracted a fever and died. In January of 1796, the sixth and final child was born Jonathan Carey. During these years in India, Dorothy's mental health strongly diminished. One would think that the loss of her children and being relocated to India would contribute to this. Her mental derangement gradually intensified until her death on December 8, 1807. Five months later, on May 9th, 1808, Carey married his second wife, Charlotte Rumahor. They were united in marriage until their death on May 30th, 1821, and on July 22nd, 1822, Carey married his third wife, Grace Hughes. Their marriage lasted until William's death. Throughout his life, William experienced the deaths of people he loved. Not only did he outlive two wives and endure the death of multiple children, but he also outlived many of his close friends. John Sutcliffe, Andrew Fuller, Krishna Paul, William Ward, and John Ryland Jr. Finally, on the morning of June 9, 1834, Carey experienced death. One of his last requests was that a couplet from one of his favorite Watts hymns and nothing more be inscribed on the stone slab which would mark his grave, which reads, A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. Though Carey finished his Christian race in India, he was looking for a better country. This has been a biographical sketch of William Carey, but um, we can learn several things from Carey, uh, far more than I will be able to talk about in this conversation. But first, we can learn about the obligation to use means. The obligation to use means. Once, as a young man, Carey was present at a fellowship for ministers. During this meeting, the idea was suggested that they have some area of doctrine to discuss. Carey suggested the following topic, the duty of Christians to attempt the spread of the gospel among the heathen to the nations. After suggesting this topic, the story is normally told that Carey was rebuked by an older man named John Ryland Sr., the father of the man who baptized Karen, uh, William Carey. Uh, this apparently happened, uh, I say apparently, because a man named uh, Garrett Walden is doing research to explain uh, if this event really took place or not. Uh, there are There is some debate of whether or not this actually took place, but as it's popularly told, John Ryland uh, Sr. apparently said the following to William Carey. Young man, 
sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And William Carey's topic was not taken up. Well, later, Carey published a work titled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversions of the Heathens. He wrote this in 1792. In this publication, Carey refuted the view held by some of his contemporaries, apparently, that making disciples among the nations was no longer a binding command upon the church. Carey was able to refute this argument by pointing out that the other two aspects of the text in Matthew 20:18, namely baptism and the presence of Christ to the end of this age with his people, had no temporal limitations on them. The command to baptize was still very much in force, and the promise of Christ's abiding presence was still a comfort in time of trouble and turmoil. Though Ryland Sr. had apparently asserted that God would convert sinners uh, without the use of uh, Carey's means, Carey would later propound in his work, if God intends the salvation of the heathen, he will some way or another bring them to the gospel or the gospel to them. One of the most important means Carey utilized in evangelism was getting scripture into the languages of his listeners. This inevitably required the difficult work of Bible translation. With the philological giftedness that Carey had and with the ability of Ward to use a printing press, the Sampor trio worked tirelessly to the admirable goal of getting God's word into the languages of the people. One of the first languages emphasized was Bengali. Carey pulled the last page of the Bengali New Testament off the press on February 7, 1801, and by March 5, 1801, it was bound, and Carey laid it on the communion table. Nevertheless, um, Nettles further writes about Carey's philological giftedness and his uh, facility with the languages the following. Carey's work in reducing several languages and dialects to the principal level for study was massive, while his Sanskrit grammar the earliest full grammar of the languages to be written and published, set him high amongst the most distinguished of our Sanskrit scholars. Carey's work in Bengali both salvaged and improved the language and established it indeed as a viable language. Carey was responsible for translating the Bible or supervising and overseeing its translation, whole or in part, into 36 distinct languages. 36 languages, wow. Well, another means Carey strongly believed God would use to convert sinners was the preaching of the gospel through the scriptures. From the beginning, he desired to preach in earnest to these poor people. Soon, he did. On May 9th, 1795, Carey preached to them from Luke 4, 18. In this sermon, Carey declares that the information that they had received from the Hindu scriptures and the Quran were not sufficient to give them that saving knowledge of the one true God. Carey emphasized that these poor sinners needed union with the Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith. William's son, Jonathan, further explains his father's preaching emphasis by writing, In the work of preaching, my father was actively employed both at Sarampore and in Calcutta. 
At the former place, he preached in the chapel on the mission premises in English and in the Bengali language, and in English at the Danish church and at Calcutta. He preached also at the Lal Bazaar Chapel in both languages and devoted one evening exclusively to hearing and giving counsel to inquirers. Well, the last means worthy of emphasis was education. Not only were Carey, Marshman, and Ward convinced that general education would increase one's appreciation of the biblical material, they also believed that true learning would reveal the perverseness of false religion. Some of the areas of study they emphasized included arithmetic, geography, general history, practical, wisdom, and most importantly, holy scripture. Another practical lesson that we can learn by studying the life of William Carey is the importance of friendship. The importance of friendship. It would be foolish to think that the success granted to Carey came to him by his own unaided efforts. Carey not only recognized the importance of God's blessing and supernatural assistance upon his ministry, but Carey also recognized the value of deep friendships. Often throughout the history of the church, God has granted much success to a group of Christians who have been bounded together in love for one another by the Holy Spirit. Though Augustine of Hippo is commonly thought of as one of the most influential persons to impact Christianity, he was by no means a lone ranger Christian. He often reflected on friendship, writing in his confessions, without friends, even the happiness of the senses which I then possessed was impossible, no matter how great the abundance of carnal pleasures. We know the names of his two greatest friends, Olympius and Nebrides. After tracing Augustine's biography, Peter Brown observes, Having read the life of this extremely inward-looking man, we suddenly realize, to our surprise, that he has hardly ever been alone. There have always been friends around him. He learned to speak amidst the cooing of nurses, the jokes of laughing faces, the high spirits of playmates. Only a friendship could make him lose half my soul, as he says, and only yet more friendship would heal his wounds. Seldom do we find him thinking alone. Usually he is talking on such subjects to my friends. Augustine has hardly changed in this. In middle age, he remains delightfully and tragically exposed to that most unfathomable of all involvements of the soul, friendship. But Augustine is not alone in this. One may be tempted to think of Martin Luther as a lone ranger Christian who did the impossible for God, and yet Philip Melanchthon is evidence that his life was not complete solitude. Luther once wrote the following warm words to Melanchthon for encouragement. Great though our cause is, its author and champion is also great, for the cause is not ours. If our cause is false, let us recant. But if it is true, why should we make him a liar who has given us such great promises and who commands us to be confident and undismayed? 
Well, one can hardly read these words without noticing the pronouns ours, us, and we. Similarly, Carrie cannot rightly be understood without recognizing the group of friends that he labored with. Carrie was part of this Baptist Missionary Society, this close-knit circle of like-minded friends, without whom little of what he longed for would have been realized. Though each person involved with the Baptist Missionary Society played a role in propagating the gospel, there were three men from the Northampton Baptist Association whom Carrie had a deep friendship with, John Ryland Jr., John Sutcliffe, and Andrew Fuller. As previously mentioned under the biographical sketch portion of this conversation, John Ryland Jr. was the man that baptized Carrie on October 5, 1783. On August 1, 1787, John Ryland Jr. was present for Carrie's formal ordination as pastor of the Moulton Church. At the ordination service, after Carrie had presented his statement of faith, Ryland asked him various questions about his theological convictions. Ryland noted in his diary that Carrie's theological convictions were sound and sensible. Carrie's friendship with Ryland was not mere sentimentalism. Instead, they were united in their shared love for Christ and like-minded doctrinal convictions. Carrie's friendship with John Sutcliffe was also built upon a foundation of like-minded theology. Before Carrie was formally ordained to the uh, to preach, he became a member of John Sutcliffe's church in Olney in 1785. Sutcliffe privileged Carey with the opportunity to preach in his congregation on July 14, 1785, and before long, Carey was sent out by the church in Olney and was regularly preaching at the church in Moulton. During, during the early years of Carey's ministry there, Sutcliffe appears to have sent Carey the outlines of a covenant that became the basis for the one signed by the members of the Moulton Church. Additionally, Sutcliffe preached the ordination charge for Carey from 2 Timothy 4.5. The last friend present at Carey's ordination was Andrew Fuller, whom Michael Haken says may well have been his closest friend in the years that followed. Fuller also preached to the Moulton Church, and his text came from Psalm 68, 18. If Carey was the legs to the Baptist Missionary Society, Fuller was the hand that pinned the theological backbone for the impetus to evangelize the heathen. But Fuller could also be viewed as feet back in England for his efforts as the secretary of the Baptist Missionary Society. On average, he was away from home three months out of the year, raising funds and promoting the mission for the work. Fuller likened their undertaking in India to a group of men deliberating about descending into a deep mine which he had never been before explored. While we were thus deliberating, Carey, as it were, said, Well, I will go down if you will hold the rope. Andrew Fuller was a vital rope holder to the mission and a dear friend of William Carey. On October 2nd, 1792, a ministerial meeting was held at Kettering to discuss the formation of what would become the Baptist Missionary Society. In addition to Fuller, Ryland, Jr., Sutcliffe, and Carey, there was also there that night Samuel Pierce, whose church in Birmingham played a role and belonged to the Midlands Association. 
but whom Fuller had invited to be one of the preachers that day. Pierce's friendship with Carey can be deduced by the encouraging letters he sent to Carey. More than deduction, though, we get a sense of their deep friendship from a phrase written in Greek from Pierce to Carey. The commitment of these men to one another is well summed up in the words that Samuel Pierce wrote in the front of the Greek New Testament that he sent to Carey in the autumn of 1797. In choosing three particular words, Pierce was obviously seeking to remind Carey what God had done for them by joining them together in Christian friendship. Appropriately, five of them were in Greek and were drawn from Acts 4.32, a small token of the great esteem he bears his dear brother, Carey. Cardia kai tsuke mia. One heart and one soul. The last two of William Carey's friends worth mentioning are William Ward and Joshua Marshman. Together, these three men make up what has been called the Serampore Trio. They were the brethren that labored together on the field in India for the propagation of the gospel. Ward was a printing press manager who got Bible translation into the hands of readers. He also was ex- exceptionally gifted in preaching and regularly did so in Serampore. Marshman contribute to this communal effort by assuming the role of apologist for the mission. Marshman zealously and eagerly labored to make Christ known in this role. Concerning their relationship with one another, Michael Hagen writes, In all the extant literature and manuscripts of these three men, there is amazingly no trace of mutual jealousy or severe anger. Carey said the following about his relationship with Ward and Marshman. As the image or shadow of bigotry is not known among us here, we take sweet counsel together and go to the house of God as friends. Well, a final lesson that we can draw from studying the life of William Carey is the significance of evangelical Calvinism. The Significance of Evangelical Calvinism Tom Hicks writes the following about the doctrinal impetus for Carey's evangelism. William Carey, an English particular Baptist and the father of modern missions, built his mission work on warm evangelical Calvinism. Like many, Carey was initially an Arminian when he first became a follower of Christ. As Carey grew in his understanding of Scripture, he became convinced that Calvinism best articulated the Bible's teaching about salvation. Through the careful study of a book titled Help to Zion's Travelers by a particular Baptist named Robert Hall, Carey became convinced of the doctrines of grace. Hall's book presented and defended the evangelical Calvinism of particular Baptist and helped Carey to comprehend and systematize the teachings of Scripture about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and salvation. Having now been persuaded that the Arminian explanation of soteriology was wrong, Carey faced different Calvinistic structures. One type of Calvinism lent itself toward being passive and non-evangelistic to the unconverted in its preaching. This is because the particular Baptists, some of them, had been influenced by high Calvinism or, in some circumstances, hyper-Calvinism. 
these Calvinists reasoned that it was unfair to offer the gospel to the non-elect if they didn't have the ability to repent. And thus, they denied the free offer terminology of the gospel to the unconverted and would not call upon the unconverted to repent of sin and believe in Christ. Responding to this high Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism, the evangelical and moderate particular Baptists were profited by the studies of an American theologian, Jonathan Edwards. According to the universal testimony of this circle of friends, the Baptist Missionary Society, Jonathan Edwards played the largest role in lifting them from their perplexity. In Edwards' work titled The Freedom of the Will, Edwards distinguished between natural and moral necessity and natural and moral inability. The distinction follows. What has been said of natural and moral necessity may serve to explain what is intended by natural and moral inability. We are said to be naturally unable to do a thing when we can't do it if we will, because what is most commonly called nature don't allow of it, or because of some impeding defect or obstacle that is intrinsic to the will, either in the faculty of understanding, constitution of body, or external objects. Moral inability consists not in any of these things, but either in the want of inclination or the strength of a contrary inclination or the want of sufficient motives in view to induce and excite the act of the will or the strength of apparent motives to the contrary. Or both these may be resolved into one, and it may be said in one word, that moral inability consists in the opposition or want of inclination. For when a person is unable to will or choose such a thing through a defect of motives or prevalence of contrary motives, tis the same thing as his being unable through the want of an inclination or the prevalence of a contrary inclination in such circumstances and under the influence of such views. Well, perhaps the clearest influence of Edwards' writing upon uh, the particular Baptists that Carey was associated with was upon his close friend, Andrew Fuller. In a work titled The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, Fuller writes about the duty of sinners to believe in Christ, to repent of sin, and for ministers to actively evangelize the unconverted. Writing about himself in the third person, Fuller mentions Edwards' influence on himself. He writes, He had also read and considered as well as he was able President Edwards' inquiry into the freedom of the will with some other performances on the difference between natural and moral inability. He found much satisfaction in this distinction, as it appeared to him to carry with it its own evidence to be clearly and fully contained in the scriptures and calculated to disburden the Calvinistic system of a number of calumnies with which its enemies have loaded it, as well as to afford clear and honorable conceptions of the divine government. If it were not the duty of unconverted sinners to believe in Christ, and that because of their inability, he supposed this inability must be natural, or something which did not arise from an evil disposition. But the more he examined the scriptures, the more he was convinced that all the inability ascribed to man with respect to believing arises from the aversion of his heart. 
They will not come to Christ that they may have life, will not hearken to the voice of the charmer, charm he never so wisely, will not seek after God, and desire not the knowledge of his ways. Though every member of Fuller's fraternity of ministerial friends read Edwards and embraced the significance of this simple point, Fuller had put into writing this helpful distinction. In his church's confession of faith, he wrote, I believe it is the duty of every minister of Christ plainly and faithfully to preach the gospel to all who will hear it. And as I believe the inability of men to spiritual things to be wholly of moral and therefore of the criminal kind, and that it is their duty to love the Lord Jesus and to trust in him for salvation, though they do not, I therefore believe free and solemn addresses, invitation, calls, and warnings to them to be not only consistent, but directly adapted as means in the hands of the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ. I consider it as part of my duty to which I could not omit without being guilty of the blood of souls. The evangelistic stream of Calvinists would often describe their theological opponents as those who held to false Calvinism. In response, the hyper-Calvinists would accuse them of Arminianism for evangelizing the unconverted. Evangelical particular Baptists like Fuller and Ryland Jr. saw themselves holding the biblical position between the error of two extremes, namely high Calvinism and Arminianism. Indeed, the theology of Edwards and Fuller was the theological impetus and backbone that compelled Carey to take the gospel to the nations. In May of 1792, Carey uttered, expect great things, attempt great things. A critical evaluation of Carey's life shows that he did both by the help of his God and for the glory of his God. In this talk, I hope I have shown that one of the clearest ways that God used Carey was in the community of friends who shared a common love for Christ. A group of friends worked through the modern question coming to a moderate Calvinistic and evangelistic conclusion. Further, a group of friends worked together in England to formulate a plan to take the gospel to the nations. Though Carey and his family were isolated from Christian fellowship for a few years upon their arrival in India, the Lord would prosper the efforts of a group of Christian friends in Sarampore. To tell the story of Carey, the man commonly called the father of the modern missionary movement, is not to exalt one man. Instead, it is to delight in the work of God who often uses a plurality of Christians who work together to make his name great. And so the psalmist says, the, great of the, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all of them that have pleasure therein. Well, thank you for listening to this conversation on William Carey and the applications drawn from his life, including the obligation to use means, the importance of friendship, and the significance of evangelical Calvinism. I hope that it has been helpful to you in some way. You have been listening to The Covenant Podcast, which exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Until next time grace and peace. God bless.